Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. With me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. And this week we're going into uncomfortable territory. And this was prompted by an article I read in Management Today a couple of weeks ago, which was called The Business Value of Uncomfortable Truths. And it was a nice, short little article uh, with an interview by the co-founder of Octopus, which is um, an energy company. I don't know if you've heard of it, Heather, but it was really strange because I've been having a conversation with a colleague about energy companies only a few days before. And then this article popped up. So I thought, right, that must mean I've got to to look at this in some more detail. So co-founder of Octopus Group, Simon Rogerson, uh, wrote in this article about why honesty in the workplace is the best policy. And last week we were talking about some research that had been done about lack of honesty in the workplace. So it seemed to fit in quite nicely. Did you see the article, Heather? Yes, I did. Yeah, I had to Google who Octopus Group were. um, And they're involved with, as you say, financial services and energy. And they apparently are one of the UK's fastest growing companies. um, And they straddle those two sectors. And so the company itself looks quite interesting. Um, never mind the work that he's he's talking about in terms of feedback. And I guess the majority of what he seems to be talking about is um, it's the whole scrutiny. It's the whole if you're feeding back, then that means that you've considered and, and made some form some opinions either on your own performance or the performance of somebody else. Or the performance of a, you know, a third party uh, so it, it's much more about that you, if you don't look you can't you can't be brave you can't make changes you need to in order to respond you need to be thinking about how it's all going and then how do you convey that message to whoever you need to convey it to yes it starts off the article by by talking about risk averse bureaucratic companies that want to imitate the nimbleness and dynamism of a startup and he reckons this is what they need to do they need to get comfortable with failing and with Mm. failing comes the need to give and receive feedback but it's a big challenge because culturally I think we struggle in this country with receiving feedback and giving challenging feedback shall we say yeah and I I think I think it's because historically can I give you some feedback has usually been followed by a stop doing this or you're rubbish at that you know it's not been delivered very sensitively and actually I, I found a definition that said that feedback comes in three forms so there's appreciation so that's when you thank somebody so that's positive feedback uh, there's coaching uh, there's a better way to do it uh, and evaluation this is where you are at this moment in time in terms of your performance uh, and so you know nobody minds being appreciated nobody minds being coached uh, so why is it that we have this um, this aversion to the evaluation type feedback and I guess it must come from our you know way back in our childhood or something you know when we're being measured against our peers so I wonder if there's a reluctance but I think the most important thing is that feedback isn't only negative feedback 
it can be positive yeah. keep doing that because it works really well what I thought was interesting in octopus is that they are working to normalize giving feedback by making it a requirement that each person has to both receive and deliver four pieces of feedback a month right. and by doing that you, you're you're actually totally normalizing the process sometimes you might be initially um, scratching around for things to feed back on but I think you, you once you start to get into the routine and the rhythm of it it becomes a natural and normal process to both give and receive that feedback it seems to work for octopus and, and of course if it becomes a habit within within the culture of an organization we're going to get better at it because we'll have more practice at doing it uh, and also if you have been asked to give some feedback and the feedback is the of the evaluation type knowing sometimes we're afraid to deliver it in case the other person kicks off or responds you know unfavorably so it actually promotes a culture where you're totally allowed to do that because feedback is not it's it's about behavior it's not about personality it's not about you being a bad person it's about a different way of doing something or as i said before continuing to do something so uh, yeah we have to we have to be careful about the language that we use but in that culture they're just going to get better at it and people people will become more self-aware and more able to give feedback in a constructive and helpful way i think another interesting thing i picked up from the article was um that simon highly rates the value of humility so much so that he uses a ratio when hiring people um based around humility um, and that ratio is how good you are divided by how good you think you are <laughs> <laughs> and if that ratio is ever more than one then you're unlikely to have humility and unlikely to take failure well um, I thought that was quite interesting um, but I, I'm not saying that it's something everybody should take on board because it's quite um, how do you judge those two two figures mm -hmm. how do you put a number on it but I, I just thought it, it's interesting that he takes that approach right from the hiring stage and so yeah. he's also said it's quite important that you have to role model it as well so the top executives are also involved in this feedback giving and receiving feedback i then went on to look at some ted talks i found it a cracker it's only uh, just over four minutes long uh, by a lady called leanne renninger and she's the founder of life labs and her speciality is rapid skill acquisition which sounds quite intriguing and that uh, in this four minute talk she gives some really inf really useful information starts off by saying that in a recent survey and this um, article isn't that old actually it's only from last year that only 26 percent of employees strongly agree that the feedback they get actually improves their work quite shocking really and then does she go on to explain why why that's the case yeah well she she talks about the fact that it's actually not designed very well for the brain the way that most people give feedback um so they're either in the camp that it's very indirect and soft and the brain doesn't even recognize it as feedback or it is just simply confused because it's too soft 
or they fall into the camp of being too direct, in which case the brain goes on the defensive. So she gives a four-part formula, which she says you can use for feedback or you can use for giving any difficult message well. And I thought it was really useful. If you get a chance to see the video, it's well worth it. But um, just to give you an idea, the first part is you start off with the micro yes. So say something that they will actually agree with and let the brain know that feedback is actually coming. So you ask them a question that is short but important and then you're getting them into that right frame of mind to continue. And you, you give them a sense that um, they, they can either say yes or no to that question. So they've got a little bit of autonomy, but it also creates buy-in. Then you get to the next point, which is the data point. She says to avoid things that they call blur words, which are these non-specific words, like um, you shouldn't be so defensive or you could be more proactive. Whereas actually, if you want to say something like you aren't reliable, you say very specifically, you said you were going to email me by 11, but I still don't have it. So very specific yeah. about that point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because the, the brain um, can interpret a blur word quite differently. Then you move on to the impact statement. And this is where you in indicate what impacts that data point had on you. So by not getting that email to you by the agreed time meant that I couldn't move forward with my work. And, and that gives them a sense of purpose and meaning and logic to the point that you're making. And she says there that the brain really craves that sense of purpose. And then the fourth part of the feedback formula is to finish with a question. Um, wrap up your feedback message with this question. So ask them what their thoughts are, are on that or what they think they can do about it. And what it does is it creates commitment rather than compliance. And uh, it stops the conversation um, not being a monologue and starts to become a joint problem solving situation. I mm. really like that little package. And um, she also says that great feedbackers, oh, sorry, feedbackers, great feedback givers not only say messages well, but they also ask for feedback regularly. I thought that was an interesting point, is that in the research that she did on perceived leadership, you should not wait for feedback to be given to you. You should actively ask for feedback. And that's what she phrased, what she called pulling feedback. And then that establishes you as a continual learner and puts the power in your hands. So a little four minute talk I thought was incredibly powerful. Mm. And I've taken on board everything that she said in that four minutes. Mm. Yeah, really interesting. I, um, I went back to a book. Um, I'm not sure if we've actually reviewed this, Unlocking Potential by Michael Simpson it's it's potentially it's about different coaching techniques um, but there's one about giving effective feedback there's a chapter about that and what he is saying is that often we we think of feedback as me giving feedback to you rather than me helping you to evaluate your own feedback your own appraisal of yourself and so asking questions like what do you like about what you've done here or what seems to be working well or what would you have done differently or what are the benefits of doing things differently they're actually posing questions and they're getting the individual 
to think about and vocalize and give feedback to themselves so so in the coaching role you're just drawing that out of them and helping them to reflect rather than you telling them what you think has gone well so i thought that you know that as a rule of thumb is a really helpful hang on a minute right let's let's make this as you said uh, as, as your lady says what let's make it a conversation so there's joint ownership rather than it being directive uh, and being applied to you we just finished this section i want to mention one ted talk another ted talk um that i'd like you to watch if you get a chance this is slightly longer it's but it's only eight minutes by a, a gentleman called joe hirsch and it's basically um exploring the idea that what if fee getting feedback wasn't a source of fear but joy and he talks about his own experience of being afraid of receiving feedback so much so that it hinders his career and what happened when he um, started to understand the value and the joy in receiving feedback so that's worth a watch as well so we'll put a link to the things that we've talked about on our blog at our website thebusiness.community some of the stories that have caught our eye in the news this week, um, for me personally, there are a couple around large organisations that are very, very wealthy. There was an article um, on Sky that said, and it was, I read it and I had to read it again to check that I wasn't completely misunderstanding. Apple's stock market surge has hit a fresh milestone as its value overtook that of the entire FTSE 100 index of UK listed companies. Wow. That, I mean, the iPhone makers market capitalization hit $2.2 trillion, which is 1.6 trillion sterling. Um, and it, yeah, just, just massive growth, massive growth. Uh, and you just never really, you can't, I can't comprehend that one organisation can be worth more than, than the FTSE 100. It, it's just massive. Um, and of course, they then go on to say that the FTSE 100 has partly recovered from the decline that we saw at the start of the pandemic. Um, but it is yet, as we might imagine, is yet to recover to its pre-COVID peak. Um, the a couple of other companies that um have had losses um rolls royce british airways um i mean rolls royce perhaps more surprisingly but um british airways we've we've known for a while that they've they've been in trouble but then another company an article on the bbc the platform with which we are recording this show, Zoom, which has become a household um, um, essential, <laughs> essential. Well, really, yeah, during coronavirus, yeah, uh, they have seen their revenue skyrocket as their second quarter profits more than doubled due to the coronavirus crisis. Revenues leaped three hundred and fifty-five percent. $663.5 million for the three months ending 31st of July, exceeding expectations, which were set at 500 million. Uh, they, 
the growth has just been phenomenal and it, it's no surprise to us. But of course, there's also WebEx that people have used, Microsoft Teams that people have used. And this kind of just goes back to some of the things that we've talked about throughout all of this, that in any bust time, there will always be some boom with some organizations. And these guys probably probably couldn't have anticipated that things would move as swiftly as they have. And then finally, one story um, that caught my eye on um, earlier in the week was Marks and Spencers and Ocado, the people who used to deliver food shopping for Waitrose, have joined forces. So now you can order food, Marks and Spencers food online to be delivered in certain parts of the country. I did a little look and if you live in Wrexham, you can get a Marks and Spencers food delivery. If you live in Shrewsbury, you can get a Marks and Spencers food delivery. But if you live where I live, you can't at the moment. Um, but it's a 1.5 billion partnership. Uh, and Ocado have been with Waitrose for 20 years. And this is- That long, this is really? That long, yeah, yeah. So this is a big change. Um, and the MD uh, of Marks and Spencer said that, you know, this, we're really pushing this now. We, we want to compete with the home delivery um, network and they're, they're investing a lot of money, a lot of effort. And uh, hopefully, um, uh, hopefully jobs, some jobs will be created. But um, one funny thing that they mentioned is that they have done some limited edition Percy Pig delivery vans, which is the, the little pink suite that uh, that kids seem to love from Marks and Spencers. So I guess we'll need to be looking out for those on the streets um, in the very near future. So uh, so that's my news for this week. What have you got, Tracy? I've got nothing as good as a Percy Pig delivery van. <laughs> So a couple of articles caught my eye because we've been talking about these subjects over the last few weeks and months. And, and these are specifically from businesslive.co.uk about the um, conversion of commercial property and, and in this case offices into flats and houses. And there's former council offices in Hexham, which is in Northumberland, not Wrexham, Hexham. Hexham. And they're turning a grade two listed property with quite a lot of history actually into, um, it was the former headquarters of the Tyndale Council and they're turning it into 11 apartments and five new build homes on the grounds. Now this is pre-COVID, so it wasn't caused by COVID. The plans were already in place at the end of last year but it does fit into that discussion that we were having about the repurposing of commercial property very well and another article that was out at the same time on business live is talking about um, the transformation of a neglected office block in stafford and that has been turned into 27 high spec one and two bedroom apartments and uh, I, I just think we did say what is going to happen to all of these office spaces and I think plans appear to have already been afoot to convert some of them. I just suspect we'll have a few more available to turn into properties and I think this, this really will change the face of the high street as we move more people into the centre of the high street to use these office buildings. 
So I think this story is going to run and run. So we'll, we'll keep an eye out for that. And then this one uh, is a tenuous link to um, business, but I'm sure we can think of a business reason for wanting to know the top 100 baby names over a period from 1904. Now, um, I looked at my own name and it was probably not surprising to anybody that my name hasn't appeared in the top 100 <clears throat> since the early 70s. And one thing, that I, I realized with my name, it very clearly ages me between the mid to late 60s and the early 70s. That's it. The graph that showed the appearance in the top 100 was a very short line just covering those years. So there, there are not many babies being called Tracy these days. But what do you reckon about Heather? Do you reckon you're in the top 100? When Ooh, did you no. start becoming popular? do you think i well it, i used to find that there weren't very many heathers but now as as i get older there seem to be more heathers around but i, I was born in the 60s um and i was named after my mother's cousin who was obviously older than me so um yeah i don't really know i i doubt it's in the top 100 yes it is actually it still is now um and it it was um first oh no i think it might have dropped out now but it was um in consistently from the early 30s through to the 2000s it doesn't appear to be there uh, in the last 20 years um but you you started off quite low in the early 30s so you were in the top 100 but about 97 um peaking all the way through the 50s and 60s about 55 bit of a dip and then a bit of a resurgence around 1990 and then it really off. yeah for some reason gosh uh, i'm sure there must be some social or something to do with a film or a tv program or music that that would have prompted that so in this tool on the ons website you can put in any baby girl name and any baby boy name and it tells you where it ranked between 1904 and 2019 so if you've got another name you'd like me to put in heather oh gosh um uh, put in jane because um that's my middle name jane okay which i imagine is quite an old name yeah well yes that was on there um at about 42 in rank between one and uh, 100 in 1904 Mm -hmm. took a bit of a dip but only went down as low as about 73 74 in the 1930s peaked when do you reckon it peaked oh um in the 60s yeah late 60s was was up in the top 10 Gosh. in the 60s and then by early 80s it, it was dropping down to 87 out of 100 and it doesn't seem to be on there anymore so the tenuous link that we're looking for is that if you are running a business that puts names on things then under no circumstances should you be um using jane as a sample <laughs> on your website <laughs> Well, if you're expecting a baby, do a bit of research. If you want to find an unusual name or start a resurgence of a name, 
then uh, it's the ONS. That's that's the place to be. Yeah. And if you really want to deep dive on the data, of course, because it's from the ONS, there's all the data available. You can download the whole data set so you can sort through it. You can look at baby names by age of mother, baby names um, from different regions. Um, and you could you could really have some good fun here if you like your statistics. <laughs> You're listening to the business community on Calon FM. And this week, a rare treat. We both have a physical book in our hands. How lovely is that? I'm holding HBR, Harvard Business Review's 10 Must Reads for 2020. And it was a pleasure to read this book. And it just reminded me of how much I like the articles and the way that they're curated into these collections of of articles every year from Harvard Business Review. I've got them going back a number of years. Not all of them are physical books. Um, Often I've bought them on Kindle, but um, I also have a collection of their other excellent books. I think we've talked about and reviewed them all a number of times on this show. So this year, the editor's note says that often when they're looking at the articles and picking a handful, what they tend to find is that there's a certain trend or theme that emerges. And this year, the theme they've come up with is a feeling. And the feeling is the surprise we experience when some long held truth is gently challenged and is revealed to be different or more complex than we had thought. And that sums up the articles in the book. Have you ever read any of these um, um, collections of articles, Heather? No, I haven't. No, I haven't. You rave about them. Um, it's something I probably should start looking at. Maybe dip into, yeah. Uh, what I like about it is that it's really, obviously, very good articles, high standard. You've got the the leading thinkers on a particular subject writing about a subject at that at that point, but they're also quite short as well, so you really can dip in. And there's all always a little um, box which is called idea in brief, and there's okay. just a little box on the page. I'm showing Heather on Zoom there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not much help to you there, listeners at home, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure Heather can get the idea. So the idea in brief box um, states the problem, why it matters, and in practice. And you get that with every article, which is really nice. And I, I think, um, oh, another one here, the problem, the study, and the findings. So it's that sort of idea. So I'll just take you through a few of the articles that are in here. Um, the first one is the surprising power of questions. And it, it talks about how some professionals are trained to ask questions. For example, um, the legal professional or journalists or doctors. Um, but the authors say that few executives regard questioning as a skill to be honed. And the author of this article, Alison Brooks and Leslie John, say that this is a missed opportunity. And it talks about why you need to hone the skill of asking questions. And skip over a couple here. Um, what most people get wrong about men and women. And this one is described as a clarion call for rejecting the script that encourages women to act more like men and instead fixing the things that undermine women and reinforce gender stereotypes. 
Then a really interesting article here on collaborative intelligence, humans and AI are joining forces. And it makes the, the case that AI isn't going to replace humans. And if that is what an organization tries to do, nearly displace the workers, then they're missing the full potential of AI. And really it's about human and machine collaboration where you'll get the true value of AI. Um, there's an article called Strategy for Startups, Operational Transparency, which advocates for the deliberate design of windows in and out of an organization. And they use the example of open kitchens and how much more people appear to enjoy their meals with the research that they do. Their satisfaction increases if they can see who's cooking their meal. Ah. So if you take that analogy and say, create a window into and out of your business so that people can increase their level of trust and their satisfaction in the service that you offer. Um, there's also an article about um, this one sort of chimed with me because of the conversation we had last week about Lush. And this is about the business ecosystem being still motivated above all by shareholder wealth. And this article is called the Dual Purpose Playbook, talking about dual purpose companies that find successful ones have got a commitment to both economic and social value. It, and it's built into their core organizational activities. We've talked about a number of organizations like that. And just a, a quick one to finish um, my review on here is um, a study into how CEOs manage their time and it's apparently the first of a kind fine-grained study which reveals similarities in how CEOs structure their schedules for example they all attend a lot of meetings along with the differences such as some dedicate far more face time to investors and customers than others do. It's quite a, an interesting little survey. Um, it's based in America, but um, Michael Porter and the Harvard Business School did this research um, over 12 years and collected 60,000 hours of data from 27 chief executives. That's quite a body of work, isn't it? Mm, yeah, it is. Oh, yeah, sorry. One, what I must mention this one, one final piece, when no one retires. And this helps companies to develop a longevity strategy for fostering a vibrant multi-generational workforce, which I think with the future of work, companies are going to have to start thinking about how they can um, work with an older generation of people that can't or don't wish to retire mm. at what we would have thought is the normal retirement age. So in my, of course, I, I love this book. I love a lot of the stuff that HBR do, but this is HBR's 10 must reads for 2020. Just so you know, I've already got the 2021 version on order. <laughs> You're their number one fan. Well, I've got a book that um, I, I, I ordered this book because a guy that I saw speak, a guy called Paul McGee, who I think I might have mentioned, he wrote a book called uh, Sumo, Shut Up, Move On. And during lockdown, he was doing some um, pieces to camera and he mentioned the author of this book, a guy called Jez Rose, and uh, mentioned the book. Uh, so he probably mentioned it because he's quoted in the beginning of it. Um, as, uh, as giving a review. Anyway, um, it's, uh, it's called Flip the Switch 
achieve extraordinary things with simple changes to how you think. It talks very much about um, how we can choose the way that we think about things, how we can then choose how we uh, examine what we think about things, and then we choose our behaviour to move forward. And he starts, he starts early on in the book by telling a story where he, um, he bumped into somebody. If you see the guy, he's got quite an interesting uh, um, beard. <laughs> yeah, quite an interesting beard. It's, I can't describe it. It's sort of a curly beard. Um, but he, he tells a story of when somebody, he met somebody and they said, uh, uh, you know, it's his moustache, I beg your pardon, it's his moustache that they were looking at. They smiled and they said, I love that. He said, I thanked them and they replied, I think that's brilliant. Do many people stare at you? Uh, he said he was a little bit taken aback um, at that comment. Um, but he said, well, yeah, you know, occasionally people do do take a look. Um, but, you know, I don't think, it, I think it draws more smiles than it does disapproving looks. And the person went on to say, brilliant. And why not, hey, normal is taken. And he uses that term, normal is taken, normal is taken as the basis of his book so that we can choose um, to achieve. Uh, he says, why is it that despite trying, some people struggle to achieve while others appear to achieve quite extraordinary results? Could the way you think, behave or your approach to life be holding you back from reaching your full potential and he encourages us to choose to be extraordinary it's it's quite witty quite funny book uh, he uses he uses stories he uses examples he uses um, some he refers to some theories and a bit like the book that you were talking about Tracy occasionally there are little shaded boxes which are things like activities for you to do so think about who you spend time with for example um think about why why do we do things this way why don't we do them you know why can't we do them differently you know why just because something is done a certain way why can't we flip the switch and, and do it differently uh he talks about uh assessing and, and you're taking a, a sort of a, a um a temperature check on our lives from time to time so thinking about you know where are we now where do we want to get to and what would need to happen for that to to be achieved not rocket science but just really a, a really sort of simple and straightforward and easy to digest way of getting you to think about some of the things that you, you probably know um for example um think about who you spend time with don't hang around with people who you know drag you down or put you down or give you negative energy uh it's 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 a really good book i bought a second hand uh copy uh which was signed by the author for somebody else um but he also in the back of his book he mentions um his business so he actually helps businesses to get extraordinary results so i went along to his website and that in itself is really use is really interesting he basically has got a farm um and i think it's in uh, lincolnshire there we go and he does team building activities at the farm he keeps bees 
Um, he does bee tasting activities. He does mead making activities. His, his, his farm is carbon neutral. Uh, it's organic. Uh, he's just quite an interesting character. But it, the things that he talks about in his, in his workshops all are all built on in, in this book. So um, that's Flip the Switch, How to Achieve Extraordinary Things with Simple Changes to How You Think. Uh, and as I say, I picked up a copy off of Amazon for just a few pounds. So I can see that you use that book because um, you, you've held it up to the camera and there are at least a dozen little post-it notes sticking out of it. It's always a good yeah. sign with you. Yeah, yeah, that, yes. And... and there could be more. Can I just go back on, on to one thing, just to clarify. Um, is it honey tasting rather than bee tasting? They're not tasting bees. Did I say bees? Yeah, she said bee tasting. <laughs> it, it just stuck in my mind. I couldn't move beyond bee tasting. Yeah, sorts of honey, ta honey <laughs> tasting, honey tasting. Be a beekeeper for a day. Yeah, um, don't eat bees. But don't eat bees. No, no, no. No. Uh, well, yeah, I apologise for that, but um, <laughs> I didn't even notice that I said that. Anyway, his website is jezrose.co.uk. I'll put a link to that and the books that we've uh, talked about this week on our website, which is thebusiness.community. This week, we're profiling uh, a gentleman whose name came to light last week when we were looking for information about the founder of Lush. And we happened across a list of people from Devon uh, and basically rich business people from Devon. And this gentleman's name cropped up. His name is Christopher Dawson, Chris Dawson. He's a British billionaire. Uh, he's the founder, owner and executive chairman of the British retail chain the range those big out of town um units that sell pretty much everything um and are now always very busy and everything is priced reasonably uh and affordable and he's made a fair few quid out of it um this isn't his only business venture wasn't his only business venture but in 2020 according to the sunday times rich list he and his family he has a wife and he has two children who work within the business are believed to be worth 2.05 billion that's an increase of 60 million from 2019. he was born in plymouth he was the son of a market trader and he left school with very few qualifications um, struggled with dyslexia uh, but now he gives back by going to his primary school to, to talk about business studies with students he started off selling seafood from the back of a van and um, buying stuff at, at um, jumble sales and now sells products made by lush lego levi jeans and I think they must strike some end of line deals or um, catalogue catalog surplus deals, uh, because I saw a video where he was talking about a new store that he was opening in Exeter and how they were going to be selling clothes from high end um, organisations. Yes, there's quite a famous story about how he bought the 
stock from MFI as they were failing at a massively reduced cost. So that that you must keep an eye out for those sorts of bargains. Yeah, and strikes deals. Yes. What did you find out about him, Tracy? Well, I did find out that it's now his wife that owns the business. Um, she moved to Jersey, and so um, he's transferred the whole of the business in 2017 to his wife, Sarah. She does work in the business, so she's very hands-on in the business. Um, she's apparently a buyer, and their two children, I think Lisa is also a buyer, and his son Christopher works on refitting stores. So they're very hands-on. I read somewhere that um, if the kids wanted extra money as they were growing up, then they had to do a shift in the store to earn it. And uh, I also learned, this one made me smile, that he describes himself as uh, Del Boy, the only Fools and Horses character. And his Rolls Royce has got the registration DE11BOY. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> um, but he, he does fly into, uh, he visits at least 10 of his stores every day in his helicopter. So uh, he's still very hands-on with the business. And uh, he clearly is a man, he, he says he loves to sell. He comes alive when he's selling. And uh, a couple of the stories I've, I read about him, he's quite entrepreneurial right from school. And so uh, there's a couple of stories in an article I read in Elite Business magazine. It's entitled Galvanised by Greed. Um, but this is the greed for success, apparently. And he he's wrote, um, the article was written in 2013. Um, but he said that he um, at school, he was given a job to do by the PE teacher uh, to linseed oil all of the cricket equipment asked the PE teacher what to do with the old rubbishy bats and he said to throw them away. So he took them home and sold them instead. And a similar sort of scam went on in his metalwork class where he, ha he had the job of changing the scrap metal bins and he encouraged his classmates to make mistakes and throw their metal rejects in the bin. He'd then empty the bin and take it home and flog it. And apparently on the last day of school, one of his teachers asked him about his enterprising approach to school and, and told Dawson that he was a genius. There was a rude word in front of it, but yeah. a genius. Um, and he said that you'll either end up in prison or very rich. And uh, he's quite grateful that it was the latter. <laughs> But it reckons he can naturally sell and he says the world's a stage. He loves the chemistry between himself, the public and the stock. And he just really comes to life when he's selling. I saw a video um, where they were opening a new store um, somewhere. I think it, that might have been Exeter, actually. And they basically set up um, a market store sort of on a, on a trailer. Uh, and he was selling from this from this the stand and he'd got some um apple watches i think they were and he was asking people how much are the you know and he got four of them how much are these how much are these right okay yeah right well i'm not asking you for that i'm not asking you for that i'm not even asking you you know in the classic yeah. sort of market banter sort of um way and he he sold these four watches for 10 pounds each wow. and you could see that he liked the sort of the performance side of it uh and you know he's clearly been very good at it because he's he's basically been selling stuff 
since he was 15. <laughs> he, um, interestingly, I found an article um, that referred me to uh, um, the growth of the range and how since 2014 it's gone from um, having 5,800 staff um, having a turnover of 470 million and a profit of 46 million to in 2019 9,524 staff so um, almost double the staff sales uh, 869 million so again approaching double the um the turnover and profit of 86 million and yes he's got a helicopter and he sort of and he's got his roller and he's got his wife living on jersey etc etc but i found it, it referred me to an article in the sunday times now i didn't even know that the sunday times produces um the sunday times tax list which reveals Britain's top 50 taxpayers. Now, this is from January last year. I, I couldn't see that they'd done it this year. Um, but basically, they, they talk about how much money he, he pays in, in taxation. And he actually pays more than Amazon and Starbucks. Um, he contributes 30.4 million to HMRC according to the uh, the Sunday Times and the figures are quoted they are believed to be a conservative estimate um, because th they believe that he probably actually pays significantly more um, but it you know so often people yes his wife's living on Jersey but he's he is still paying taxation um, so people i think sometimes people get bad press for for dodging their 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 tax payments but he's he seems to be chucking a fair bit of money towards hmrc oh, it just occurred to me and i don't know whether this is a, an appropriate um, comparison but i sort of see the range as a modern day Woolworths, the place where you can get anything you need yes you yes to go go to the range and that always used to be the way with Woolworths, didn't it yeah absolutely yeah it makes you wonder why the Woolworth model didn't survive i suppose it it must be because he is buying discounted you know end of line stuff um whereas perhaps Woolworths didn't didn't use that model but and um, most of the range stores are out of town whereas Woolworths were mostly on the high street so maybe yes that's true that, that's the yes. evolution of that type of shop yeah yeah that's true and he's opening more stores um so yeah it's 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 a good time to be to be mr dawson i think and to be mrs dawson <laughs> so that's about all we've got time for this week um thanks so much for joining us and we will be back next week with more news views and reviews from the world of business You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.